This is the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. My name is Sarah Jefford and I'm a surrogate and a surrogacy lawyer. In this episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Ella McNamara, who is an Australian mum who now works for the Fertility Centre of Las Vegas from Sydney. So Ella is uh, one of our supporters of the Surrogacy Sisterhood Day, but she also provides assistance for Australian couples who are looking at IVF processes in America. I'm going to let Ella talk about what she does and how you can find out more. But if you have any questions, by all means, you can get in touch with me or you can contact Ella and I've put her email address in the post on my website. I'm going to hand over now to Ella. My name is Ella McNamara. I work for the Fertility Centre of Las Vegas. Uh, I'm a Sydney cider um, and a mum through IVF. Um, I did my IVF here in Australia. A um, bit of a strange story as to how it all came about. Um, I, at the time, was working in the pharmaceutical industry and I had watched a TV show about a radio presenter called Sammy Lucas. Uh, Sammy had just turned 41 and was looking at her options of having a baby and she felt like time was getting away from her. Um, in the course of this, this documentary, uh, she went to a fertility centre and asked for something called an AMH test, uh, an anti-malarian hormone test. And so I was chatting with a doctor um, that I was calling on professionally um, about this test and whether it was sort of a legitimate thing. And uh, he, said, um, he said, I think it is a legitimate test, but I've never done one. Should we just do one on you now? And so sort of as a bit of a joke, we ran uh, a blood test. And three days later, my phone rang and it was the doctor saying, uh, I need you to come in now. Uh, so it was a bit of a shock because the whole thing had been a bit of a lark. I was 31 years old uh, and I went back to my, my doctor yeah, and he told me that uh, I had an undetectable AMH uh, and that this was a really bad thing. Uh, and that I should probably uh, go and see a fertility specialist um, as soon as possible. Wow. So what does the, AM, the low AMH, or in your case, undetectable, what does that actually mean for somebody that wants to have children? Yeah, so an AMH or anti-malarian hormone test um, is often called the egg timer test. So essentially what that generally means is the number of eggs that they predict you have left or the level of, of eggs. Uh, so as you're, when you're younger, you, know, you tend to have a higher um, AMH and a higher level of eggs um, available to make babies from. Uh, but unfortunately, as time goes on, uh, that level decreases. So as we get older, we tend to have less eggs. Um, some reason, um, and no one knows why, um, uh, my level was, um, was very, very, very low. So at the age of 31, I had the same level of eggs that you'd expect from a 47-year-old woman. Goodness. Okay. So uh, what happened then? You went off to see the, the fertility specialist? Yeah. So, um, I mean, that, that uh, information kind of hit me like a bit of a brick. Um, I uh, rang my boss, told him I had a migraine and went home and sat in bed and cried all day. Um, I thought, um, you know, it made me question a lot of things, uh, what my life was going to look like without children, uh, what my relationship uh, with my partner, who's now my husband, uh, would look like if we would be enough for each other. It was really um, a pretty earth shattering thing. Um, I also had a mother who, uh, despite the fact that she didn't have any grandchildren, had retired from work in preparation for grandchildren. And I suddenly thought that I was going to greatly disappoint her too. So it was actually um, a real really awful day. Um, and on top of that, um, I didn't really know where to turn. 
I had one girlfriend who I knew had uh, IVF. And so I called her uh, and cried down the phone to her and she gave me the, a suggestion of um, her IVF specialist who she'd liked very much. Um, and I made an appointment with him that day. And I saw him at the end of that week. Uh, again, we repeated the same test, got exactly the same result. Uh, uh, so uh, two weeks later, um, I got my period. Sorry, gents, for the P word. Mm -hmm. uh, and started IVF treatment immediately. So this all happened in a space of uh, four weeks, start to, uh, start to finish. Um, and two weeks later, I went in to have uh, my egg retrieval. And I'd been pumped full of the highest levels of medication that they could give to a person. And I got four eggs. Um, wow. And we've, we fertilized those. And uh, I ended up with one embryo. Uh, I did a fresh transfer and uh, it was it was successful. So I guess the, the, the bad news for me was is that I had a low level of eggs, but because I was still quite young, um, they seemingly were of decent quality. Um, and yeah, so I look, I, you know, I, we talk about my IVF journey. It was quick. It was uh, brutal, um, but it was really successful. Uh, so nine months after that, uh, my first son, Angus, was born. Uh, all 4.65 kilograms of him, uh, and um, and he's now about to turn seven. Uh, so um, that was really really exciting. Um, when he was about 12 weeks old, though, um, I was made redundant from my my job, um, which again was a bit of a shock. Uh, and I sort of you know was doing the maths in my head. We knew that my levels of eggs were low now. We didn't know when they'd be, go from being low to being non-existent. And I'd been encouraged to, to go, if I wanted to have a second child, to, to try again reasonably quickly. And uh, I sort of realised that it, there was no point in me finding a new job to go back to after I'd been on maternity leave, then having to work another year before I could start again. Uh, so I thought, oh, we'll just try, we'll just go again um, straight away. So when he was uh, seven months old, uh, I stopped breastfeeding and had another round of IVF. Uh, similar regime in terms of drugs. Similar result. I actually got eight eggs the second time um, and only two embryos. By that time, uh, I, also, I had a fair idea about IVF because um, the last 10 months of my work in the pharmaceutical industry, I actually worked in fertility medication. And despite the fact that I knew all of the, the statistics and things, I was quite convinced that it wouldn't work the second time. You couldn't get that lucky again. Uh, so I did a fresh transfer again uh, and I fell pregnant again. So I was really lucky. Uh, eight and a bit months after that, uh, my second son Campbell was born and he is five and a half now. So I have two boys 17 months apart. Oh, goodness. So that little bit of fun, uh, taking an AMH test for fun, has led you to have <laughs> quite a bit of luck in the end, two beautiful kids. And then you've ended up working in the fertility industry for the last, what, five or six years? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, before that, so I'd worked, um, my sort of background was in uh, events and things. I worked doing business events, uh, but didn't find it particularly fulfilling. Um, I come from a medical family, so uh, I wanted to work um, in something that improved people's lives. So, of course, my first job in pharmaceuticals was working for the company that makes Botox, uh, which clearly makes sense. But I actually worked on the pharmaceutical, the, the sort of um, the side of Botox that's not about wrinkles. It's about helping people 
who have had strokes to improve uh, their mobility uh, and things like that. So that was uh, interesting. Um, and then I moved across uh, to a second pharmaceutical company that had fertility um, as part of my job. So I had a bit of background there. Um, and then after a couple of years of being off, um, having my babes, I was starting to go absolutely mental. Um, and I had an opportunity to come and work for uh, an Australian organization that gives out information on surrogacy. And I worked with them developing conferences uh, and events uh, to help educate intended parents all over the world, uh, which was a great experience. But as, at the time that I worked for that not-for-profit group, we had you know, India closing down, Nepal closing down, um, and these intended parents with these terrible stories about being trapped in these countries where the laws were just falling over or the absence of laws were causing great distress. Uh, and I was really, and there was also a lot of new markets coming up. So things like Mexico and Laos and Cambodia. And while I understood the pull for the, to, for intended parents to engage in these countries, um, largely because of cost, I was also seeing the other side of that, which was, um, you know, people being stuck in countries, people getting stuck there for ages, uh, surrogates getting worried because surrogacy suddenly being outlawed and running for the hills and intended parents not knowing where their baby was. Um, just horrendous stories. And I'm not a, a big risk taker. And um, I found that giving advice to people to go to these places was just not something that I was, um, was comfortable with personally. Uh, I, again, had, had been working with a lot of um, agencies in both Canada and America and clinics in Canada and America. And um, really, at the end of the day, I felt that if I was going to give someone advice as to somewhere to go, the only places that I would engage in myself would be those two markets. Uh, and, and so that's where I landed. I ended up being offered a job with the Fertility Centre of Las Vegas, where I currently am. And, um, and I adore it. Um, apart from, you know, uh, working in the American system, uh, which is, you know, fantastic legal protections for both the surrogate and the intended parents. Uh, you know, uh, working at a clinic where, um, it, you know, we, we refer to it as the FCLB family. Um, if you come to my clinic, you'll get hugged. And I'm sorry about that, but that's just how we are. So a lot of people that are thinking about surrogacy options, both in Australia and overseas, won't, well, they may be really confused to start off with, or they won't know how it works overseas in terms of clinics and agencies and brokers and everyone else involved. Um, how do the clinics and the agencies work together in your experience? Okay, so in um, the US, um, yeah, so in your surrogacy, surrogacy journey, there'll, there'll be um, a number of groups. The first is an agency. Uh, the agency's sort of primary role is the project manager of your whole journey. So to start off with, um, you'll meet with them and they'll tell you about the sort of services that they offer. Um, two of the major things that they do um, is that they recruit surrogates and match them with intended parents. That's one thing. And then the second thing is, is that they look after the welfare of both the intended parents and the surrogates from throughout the pregnancy and making sure that everyone gets home safely. You know, for Australians, um, we're not used to this because we don't have surrogacy agencies here. And it is kind of a different, just a different system. Um, there are a lot of moving parts in the surrogacy journey. Uh, so you'll have, in your journey, you'll have an escrow company. They hold on to the money to make sure that the surrogate gets paid. Um, and any um, other monies that need to go out get paid. There's lawyers involved for both the intended parents and the surrogate. And it's really the, and, and of course an IVF clinic. 
And it's really the agency's job to make sure that all of these things uh, work smoothly. Clinics in the US um, are similar to clinics here in Australia. Uh, we do the medical parts of the journey. So we're checking, we're, you know, we're doing the egg retrievals if you're doing the IVF yourself or using an egg donor. Uh, we have a database of, of egg donors at the clinic uh, that you can choose from if you so wish. Uh, we're also screening those egg donors to make sure that they're suitable donors. Uh, and the same thing, we will do the medical um, elements of your surrogate screening to make sure that they're um, healthy, they're, um, they have a high chance of having a healthy pregnancy and a pregnancy that's not going to do damage to them either. Uh, and then, of course, we're doing your, uh, your transfers and looking after your surrogate until they're about 10 weeks pregnant and then they go off to their local obstetrician just like a, you know, an, a, any other pregnancy. So the practice that I work at is the Fertility Centre of Las Vegas. Uh, the practice was started in 1988 by Dr. Bruce Shapiro, uh, who is still the medical director of the practice today. Um, and he's joined by two really lovely, fantastic uh, lady doctors, uh, Dr. Carrie Bedient and Dr. Leah Kay. Um, look, I think the thing that links the three of them together um, is that they're all just uncompromising when it comes to safety and really focused on success. Um, so the practice still does a lot of research um, to make sure that the treatment that our patients are undergoing um, is as safe and successful as it possibly can be. A lot of the research that uh, Dr Shapiro and the other doctors have done in the past has really shaped the way um, that IVF is performed in clinics all around the world. So can you take us through the sort of screening that happens for a woman in America that is considering becoming a surrogate? What's her first step when she contacts the agency? Yeah, so generally most agencies will have some sort of online form with some basic qualifiers. So, uh, you know, some of the qualification um, for being a surrogate uh, in the US and, and things do vary a little bit state to state and agency to agency, uh, but they're going to want to make sure that the, the, any surrogate or anyone considering surrogacy um, has had a baby before and at least one child needs to be in their, uh, uh, under their care. Uh, so if they had a baby when they were very young and that baby was adopted out, uh, that doesn't meet that requirement. Uh, so that's one of the first ones. Uh, the surrogate needs to be uh, financially stable. Um, it doesn't mean they need to be rich um, and it's not to discriminate against the poor. Uh, what it is is that the way that the uh, US um, system works is that the pregnancy care, so you're going to your obstetrician and things, the bills come back to the surrogate in the surrogate's name. Sometimes those things need to be paid by the surrogate and then are reimbursed by the agency or the escrow company. Uh, so they need to be able to pay those as it goes. Um, and we don't want that person to be under financial duress um, if they can't. So we don't want them to not be able to pay their, their mortgage or their bills or the rent because they're paying for surrogacy bills um, and they can't you know, they don't have enough credit to, to get there. So we don't want them in trouble. We also, they can't be on any form of government assistance because the income from surrogacy can be um, seen, can disqualify them from uh, the government assistance. And, um, and we, again, don't want to see that happen because this really is a one-off event, um, the surrogacy income. So those are a couple of things. We're also looking at their, um, their general health. So their... Um, BMI, blood pressure, their previous deliveries to make sure that, um, you know, they, they are physically um, a good candidate. Uh, they also usually will have a 
a criminal background check done. Uh, some agencies will do a, a house inspection to make sure that it's a safe environment. Um, so those are kind of the first things that, that we're looking at. Um, agencies also are going to make sure that the surrogate meets their sort of communication requirements uh, because the, often the intended parents, if they're international, uh, it's hard for them to, you know, if they ask a question and it takes weeks to get back, that's really distressing. So the agencies often want to make sure that if they're asking something of the surrogate, they're getting a good response in a good amount of time um, so that they're going to be uh, reliable through that process. Um, who are these women in America who are thinking about carrying a baby? Like, can you sort of paint a picture for who she might be that, that would motivate her to become a surrogate? So by and large, the women in the US who want to become surrogates um, are like, you know, women anywhere uh, who, who want to be surrogates. They want to help intended parents uh, begin or grow their families. I think that's always the first step. It is true that surrogates in the US are compensated for their time, so they are generally paid somewhere between about 25 and, oh gosh, 50, 60,000 American dollars. Are they doing it for the money? Uh, look, I would say uh, largely no. Uh, to be honest, if they went to McDonald's and got a job, a full-time job at McDonald's, uh, they'd get paid more than they are for the 24 seven job for nine months of being a surrogate. Uh, so it isn't sort of the money-making scheme that people <laughs> sometimes outside of the surrogacy industry paint it to be. I guess um, the women, I mean, a lot of the women that I know who are surrogates, and again, a lot of them work in the industry now, um, they're often single mums uh, who want to um, earn a little bit of money, they want to experience another pregnancy, uh, but they don't have a partner, they don't want to do it, or they've finished their family um, and want to help another. Uh, those are uh, quite common. Um, a lot of military wives who have families of their own, but their husband is uh, out of town, so it's hard for them to manage their own family and also uh, hold down a, you know, a regular hours job. Uh, so, you know, this is a good opportunity for them to, to support their family, but also to do something they feel good about. Uh, I mean, the payments are an, an interesting sort of thing to get your head around. A lot of us would love to do charity work if we could or unpaid work if we could. But the reality is, is that we all have financial um, responsibilities. And in the US, they try to, to, to find a balance of that. I guess, you know, it, it's, it is hard to get your head around. But I think that, you know, the upside of uh, there being compensation is that there are far more women who are willing to be surrogates uh, in the US than perhaps in countries where they're not being paid. I mean, certainly, you know, in Australia, you know, we're not seeing the number of, of surrogates to, to the number of intended parents. Uh, we're still not seeing that in the US either, uh, but it's far more likely um, to match with a surrogate there than, than here in Australia. So if intended parents are looking at different options overseas, is there any screening that they need to go through or any criteria that they need to meet in order to uh, pursue surrogacy? And does it depend on which state they go to or is it pretty much the same across America? Uh, so, look, it does vary um, from state to state and, um, you know, from uh, agency to agency as well. So um, it's important to find an agency that... Um, you know, A, will accept you as, as an intended parent um, and work with you and be able to serve you as an intended parent and also to make sure that 
they're putting you in a situation in a state where uh, legally everything is going to be be great and that your you know surrogate's going to be well protected and you're also going to have an easy time um, getting the right documentation that you need and getting out of the US as quickly as you can because oftentimes we just want to go home and be with our extended families um, and just be in our own, own place. You know, like here in Australia, every state in the US has different surrogacy laws. Uh, so depending on your situation, there are some states which are just, um, which are easy. Uh, so California, Oregon, Nevada, Washington State, um, whether you're gay, straight, single, married, de facto, it's not a problem. Um, they've got really open plans. There are other states that have got great surrogacy laws like Texas, but uh, they have a requirement that you're married. So an agency you're working with um, needs to, you know, you need to talk to them about your personal situation and see if they feel that they will have surrogates located in the uh, in a state that has appropriate laws for you um and uh you know and and um that they'll be able to match you in a reasonable time frame with a surrogate um who meets your um your other requirements your other needs as well as being in a great legally protected state so for intended parents who are looking at creating embryos either with their own gametes or with a donor what are the options like is it possible for them to create embryos in Australia and then transport them over to America or is it actually better for them to do the IVF in America? Uh, look, I think anyone who's considering an international journey of any type, um, the best case scenario in IVF is that the clinic that creates the embryos and freezes them should be the ones that defrost them and use them. Uh, every clinic and lab in the world has different um, protocols and um, sometimes those clinics and I'll say this of, of a number of Australian clinics um, they consider that proprietary information and they're actually not willing to hand over the Thor protocol so that is not an ideal situation um, my advice to anyone is wherever possible create your embryos where you intend to use them we oh, it's a difficult question so in Australia there are some um, issues if you create your embryos here and then wish to transport them overseas. Some of the issues are from the Australian side. So if you're thinking about creating embryos in um, New South Wales or Queensland and using them in commercial surrogacy overseas, the Australian clinic may decide that they will not release those embryos uh, because they feel that that is them participating in commercial surrogacy. So you may have troubles on the Australian side. Uh, on the American side as well, there are some challenges uh, that embryos or third party, so when we're going to take eggs and sperm or embryos from one from some people and, move, and put them into a third party, into a surrogate, that's seen the same way as if you were donating a, a kidney or a liver. And the whole process is, is overseen by the FDA. And they've got some really strict rules about the testing that needs to be done in the US um, at the time of embryo creation. Uh, again, in Australia, we don't do that testing um, stock standard um, when we're creating embryos. Uh, so it relies on your American clinic applying for an exemption given your particular uh, circumstance, and that's not always granted. Um, it's a difficult process. Um, they, it also, is also complicated if you've used a donor in Australia um, and again on the state you've created them in, in, in Australia. So if you're in Victoria and you have 
created embryos using, uh, let's say, dad's sperm and an egg donor's uh, eggs, uh, then you actually need to apply to VASTA to, um, to have those, to get permission to send those embryos overseas. And that can just be a huge process. Um, I understand that, you know, most of the time as Australians, um, because we're looking at this hugely expensive process, the whole surrogacy process, um, that we think that perhaps that we can save some money by doing some of this here in Australia. Um, it doesn't necessarily always work out that way um, with the cost of the additional testing that you'll need to do. Um, plus the, the sheer cost of shipping embryos from Australia to the US or, or overseas is, is fairly high as well. Um, we're often finding that it doesn't turn out to be very much cheaper and that you may have actually been, even if you have a, a sister who wants to donate, it may actually be cheaper for you to fly her to the US, create your embryos there and fly back. Um, you know, and it also gives your, your uh, clinic, you know, sort of a full control over the embryo and the embryo creation process, which is such a, a delicate and... Um, important process in the whole whole thing because it doesn't matter how great your surrogate is um if you have nothing to transfer to her it's it's game over so what's your role being in australia but working for an american fertility clinic yeah i know so it's a bit it's a bit of a strange one um i guess my job is two things my uh, my official role is director of agency relations um which sounds very fancy uh but um look i think Part of, part of it is, is that um, Australians, uh, oh, I, a, I live in Australia, I always have. Um, my clinic knew that um, when they hired me. Australians uh, engage in surrogacy and always have in international surrogacy for, for a very long time and very successfully. Um, but sometimes they do need a bit of a helping hand. So sometimes we do have um, patients who've created their embryos here. I'll help them. Um, I'll also work with anyone who's really at the beginning and they just don't understand where to go, um, what to do, what's important. Uh, and uh, I'm um, sort of just a source of information. Obviously I'd love for anyone to use uh, the IVF clinic that I work for because number one, I think they're excellent. Their success rates are excellent. And I know that they'll be well taken care of. I can also just assist with some of those more difficult situations um, uh, because my background in IVF. The other part of my job, um, I work with the agencies. So I work with them to understand what their costing is, what services they provide, um, how that compares to other agencies, and just sort of understand what value they provide to intended parents. I also work with them because an agency and a clinic, information goes back and forward, and we also are looking after the same intended parents, and we're looking after the same surrogates and egg donors. Uh, so what we want to make sure is that what steps in the screening process are being done by them, which ones are being done by us, and making sure we have really um, smooth communication between us because, you know, that's, we want to work with, with agencies and, uh, that we trust, um, that we trust will take a good care of you, um, and also uh, that will uh, work with us to make sure that everything's taken care of, um, you know, keeping everyone safe and, and leading to us to successful pregnancies. If you have any advice for intended parents when they're starting, what would it be, given that there's so many different options overseas and in Australia and different clinics and agencies and all of that sort of stuff, where do they start and how much information should they be looking for before they're making their decisions? Yeah, look, it's a really great question. Um, I think the, the number one uh, 
thing that I've noticed with Australian intended parents is that most of us want to stay at home and do this. And I, I can understand um, that um, from both a financial and also just a, you know, this is an experience that you want to be part of and share. But my, my first piece of advice is to don't rule anything out. You know, what we know in Australia is that I think, you know, there's some statistics um, floating around that um, Anna McKee put together where I think there was about 330 surrogacy cases um, in a year and about 50 of them happen here in Australia. Um, so I think that while we all want to be part of that small group um, that happens in Australia, we need to understand and, um, that the majority of us are going to fall outside of that. Um, and so I think what's really important is to go into these situations with an open mind, um, have an understanding about what happens in, in, in each you know, price is one thing, but what happens and what you get for that money, what the value of each of these systems is, um, is really important for you to consider when choosing what's right for you. Uh, what I'd say, you know, with Australia, it's great. Um, one of the cheaper options available to Australians, but uh, meeting a surrogate is significantly more difficult than it is in perhaps Canada or the US. So while it's cheaper, you may wait a lot longer to find a surrogate. And for many people, that will be fine. You know, they're willing to wait until they match. For some others who are on, uh, you know, want to get this done, they're, you know, a bit older, they want to use their own eggs, um, they need to move faster. So something where it is more expensive like the US, uh, but the chances of matching with a surrogate in a short period of time, and I'm talking somewhere between a month and six months typically, uh, but generally four to six months um, is realistic and that fits better with their time frame. So it's about balancing those things. But it's important to look at those markets, have a look at those things like price and time. Um, and I think really most importantly is this is going to be your child and you have to align with the ethical, uh, I guess, standards in which they were created. So you know, are you happy with your child having uh, no contact with their surrogate, um, which is the case in some markets, you know, in some countries that have surrogacy? Um, are you comfortable with you not having a relationship or being able to talk to that surrogate? I think these are important things to think of. Um, is that surrogate being treated well where she is? Uh, is her safety the number one priority of, of the clinic that you're working in and the agencies that you're working with? Um, are they fully informed as to what's involved in the process? And I think that, you know, as a, as a parent, it would be difficult for me to look at my child and have that child as a reminder that somebody else suffered for them, you know, other than, you know, the usual <laughs> sort of morning sickness and things, um, or was taken advantage of for them to, to come to, into, um, into my life. And, um, and I think that that's an important thing to think of because we're not just creating babies. We're going to create a child and we're going to create a, someone who will eventually be an adult and have questions about how they came to be. Um, I and I just right. think that that's an important piece. My advice is always the two things that they should be looking for is what's the best interest of the child and what is happening to promote the welfare of the surrogate to make sure that she's been looked after and that she's treated as a person, I guess. But what story are we telling these children when they're out in the world? Is it a really lovely positive story of the relationship we might have with the surrogate and the contact we have with her and her family and who she is? Are we creating a sort of loving uh, story for the child to know and understand that and who they are 
or is it a story that we actually kind of are a little bit ashamed of or we have to hide certain parts of it because we're not sure that we don't have any contact with the surrogate for example so we can never actually answer questions that the child might have about who carried them so yeah that's always my two things it's best interest of the child and what's happening for the surrogate is she well looked after is she happy is she doing it for the right motivations yeah, look, I 100% agree with you. Um, I always, um, you know, people say to me, and, and again, I come at this from um, a position of, uh, you know, heterosexual infertile woman, um, is, you know, finding out that, that that information is heartbreaking. And I can absolutely see how this could very easily be the worst thing that could, you know, the worst thing that's ever happened and a story of woe. Um, but I know, and, and I hate to, to, you know, draw comparisons, but um, there's sort of this, some sayings around if you see a disaster and you have to explain to your children what's happening in this disaster and they're like oh no it's so bad there's been an earthquake and it's and the 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 advice was to look for the helpers um and i sort of you know akin this to surrogacy where this could be a story of loss and all the horrible things that lead particularly the infertile woman or the woman who has had something traumatic happen to them to lead them to surrogacy. It can be a story of sadness, but man, these women who are surrogates, whether they're paid or not, they're just doing an amazing job and it's look for those helpers. Um, and it can just be just such a beautiful experience and a beautiful story for your kids to know the goodness in people um, and, and people's willingness to help. Did you have anything that you wanted to add for intended parents or anyone that's interested in uh, surrogacy options in America? Um, look, I, I, I guess um, for anyone who's thinking about uh, heading overseas, and, and, you know, there's a large range of reasons why you'd want to want to consider it. Um, I guess uh, the first thing is, you know, we all say this, and it, it sounds a bit trite, but do your research. And, and it's hard. It's hard to understand what things look like, especially on the other side of the world. Uh, since today, you can pay a couple of hundred bucks and get a good-looking website up. So really uh, ask questions ask from multiple sources so it's great if an intended parent you know has gone to the US and they've used a particular agency or, or clinic that might be right for them but it might not be right for you it might not be the right agency for you so you know it, it, it sort of pays to shop around to ask questions so look at the forums speak to other professionals speak to agencies as well um, get a feel for what feels right for you I think that's really important again. Um, and then do some background checks. So looking at their website and meeting them. Um, I, I love the Americans, but Americans are very nice people. Um, and, you know, that's when I hear, I speak to intended parents, I, they say, I said, so what did you think when you spoke to these people? And they're like, they're so nice. I was like, Americans are nice people. You need to dig deeper. So you can check um, to make sure how long their business has been registered for. Uh, you can ask them how many cycles they've done, um, how many births they've had. Uh, a lot of people, like I said, in the industry um, have been either a surrogate or an intended parent and they think that they would like to earn, they could do a better job than their agency did and wants, want to start their own agency. And it's really important that those people have got a good professional background as well. Uh, so, you know, it's not just about looking after the surrogate. It's a very complex project that needs management with lots of moving parts. So you want to make sure that they have a professional background that um, outside of surrogacy, uh, that makes them a good, you know, someone that you can rely on to run this important project properly, as well as being concerned and being sweet and nice um, and, and helpful to you as well. 
Um, so those are kind of some of the starting off things. Um, you, can, you can fact check everything uh, in the US. So age, uh, clinics, um, we all have to report our success rates uh, to the Center for Disease Control. And you can actually go online and look at the success rates for every clinic in the US. Um, don't print it off, it's like 700 pages. But if you've got a couple of clinics in mind, uh, you can go and actually check to see how successful they usually are at these things because that's what you want to want to make sure if you if you're making decisions and you're spending as much money as it costs to do a surrogacy journey uh, you want to work with a team who has the experience and the success um, to really make this as successful as possible so part of the surrogacy journey is sometimes that people also need to access donors uh, that might be egg or sperm or embryo can you tell me what's the process for somebody that needs to uh, find a donor and is considering overseas surrogacy should they find a donor in australia or should they be looking at donors overseas uh, look, realistically, they can do either. Um, basically, uh, in the US, again, uh, donors are compensated. Uh, and also because the process is costly, uh, we want to make sure that we have the best possible success. So if, you're, um, if you want to bring a donor from Australia with you, that's absolutely your choice. Um, before they came to us, we'd get them to do the same sort of screening tests that we would run on, on any of our egg donors. So we're gonna be looking to make sure that, um, that they're likely to respond well to the IVF treatment uh, and, and, and generally otherwise be healthy. Uh, we're also, we also do some genetic um, screening panels to make sure that they don't have any genetic um, you know, they're not carriers of any genetic conditions that they may not even know about because, and we'll also test the, you know, the sperm provider. So whether that be a donor or um, the intended father or fathers, and we'll be looking to make sure that when we put the sperm and the egg together and create an embryo, that that's not going to have, uh, there's not going to be a genetic issue. So we're going to do all of the same testing regardless. Uh, we're probably also going to have a conversation with you if you are, say, um, you know, you have a sister who is 38 or 39, um, that that person is in the decline of their, um, of their fertility, unfortunately. Um, and even though they had their own children seven years ago and everything was fine, that that may not be the best choice for you. But again, it'll be up to you um, 100% whether you choose to move forward. If that genetic connection or the, the, the chance of that genetic connection is more important than having a large number of embryos to, to use to create your family. Um, if that's if you want to bring someone with you. Uh, in terms of uh, donors in the US, there's a number of options. So you have uh, frozen egg banks, which are usually not the first choice of most uh, patients, usually what happens is they will choose an egg donor from a database. Clinics have a database um, and also uh, there are separate egg donor agencies who will help find a suitable donor. Uh, we have a donor database at our clinic. Um, it's, uh, you know, we, we allow access to intended parents. Uh, we have a lot of information on each donor, their genetic history, um, what their grandparents died of, all sorts of things. Uh, their education, uh, as well as photos of them from their childhood and now. Uh, so you can sort of get a sense of who they are. You can choose them. Uh, once you've chosen them, we'll do some additional screening for them. And uh, as long as they're, again, a suitable candidate, we will move forward and do a fresh 
we'll do an egg retrieval on them. Uh, the, better, the reason why that's the preferred method for most intended parents is that uh, however many eggs are collected, uh, they get to use um, and turn into embryos. Uh, whereas with an egg bank, you get four to six eggs um, and that might not be enough for uh, your family goals. Um, you know, we don't know how many embryos we'll, we'll get from that and we don't know if we get two or three embryos from that, um, that may be enough for one baby, but maybe not enough for two. If you want to have two, you're better off getting an egg donor. We run the cycle. Let's say you get, you know, six or seven embryos from that. Um, in our clinic, we've got a, about an 85% success rate. So we're looking at, you know, one or two transfers before we're typically successful. So that means you still have four embryos left. So if you want to come back and have a second child, you don't have that, um, you know, that need to do another uh, cycle. Uh, so that's um, one of the reasons. Uh, the other thing about American donation I should probably mention is that the default position in the US has generally been for anonymous donation, uh, but we're seeing a really big swing to known donation. So donors are in our pool of donors, about 85% of our donors are willing to be known. And again, you know, we're talking about what's in the best interest of the child, um, not what's you know, um, necessarily what we think at the time, you know, oh, no, gosh, I don't want to know who they are. Um, but your child might want to be. So most of the donors are now willing to be known um, in some capacity. And what does that being known mean? Is that where the child can access information about their donor, including what, their name and their medical history and that sort of thing? Yeah, so... Um, there's a couple of different definitions of known. Um, and if you are wanting a known donor, um, we'll, you, you know, you'll talk to, to the clinic or your agency about what that, what that looks like for you, what you mean, and, and then we can negotiate with the donor. Uh, some of that will mean, uh, similar to here, is that um, at the age of uh, 18, that donor can, un can get information about their, uh, their egg donor or that um, information can be uh, passed on via the clinic if something medical happens in the background. Um, and then there are some who are happy to have a Skype with you, get to know you, be friends with you on Facebook and chat to you. So there's really different levels of it. Um, and it depends what the donor and the intended parents are looking for. And it's one of those things that we're looking to match, uh, match you on as well. The thing is, you know, we're talking about surrogacy and forming families and wherever in the world that you do that, um, it's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Um, I think, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of other professionals say, you know, people, people say to them, what about um, adoption? What about, you know, fostering and things like that? Um, and I think that these are all valid ways of forming your family. Um, I think the greatest thing about surrogacy is, um, and surrogacy in the US is um, the certainty um, that if you are willing to uh, work with the professionals and your doctors to make good um, sound decisions um, about your treatment that you are going to be successful in surrogacy um, and you are going to have your family. Uh, it's not always the simplest road, but um, you know, this is, this is a road with, with happy endings. Thank you for listening to the Australian Surrogacy Podcast. If you would like to find out more information about surrogacy, you can have a look at my website at sarahjefford.com. You can also find me on Facebook and on Instagram, and you can listen to more podcasts on the website or on Apple Podcasts.